to the Justice and War in American History podcast. I'm Jason Kelly. And I'm Ray Haberski. War has long been an indelible part of America's story, shaping national identity, values, and principles. The experience of war has transformed the lives of each generation. And because of this, it has historically elicited impassioned debates and conflicting perspectives. This podcast aims to explore this history by bringing together a diverse range of voices, veterans, active service members, citizens, and scholars. Through our conversations, we will consider the ways in which war has shaped and reshaped notions of justice. In the process, we will engage with broad themes such as duty, heroism, suffering, loyalty, and patriotism. Our broad framework during this season is to compare and contrast the histories of the Spanish-American, Philippine-American, and Vietnam Wars, wars that had a profound effect on the people of the United States. The National Endowment for the Humanities has generously provided funding for this project, making it possible to have conversations about the effects of war on American veterans, their families, and the generations who bear witness to conflict. All right, so uh, this is the second part of our conversation on an episode called Coming Home. We have uh, two more guests, and I'm going to ask them to introduce themselves. So, Jennifer, why don't you start us off? All right, thanks. Uh, I'm Jennifer Manning. I am a senior over here at IUPUI. I am a veteran of the U.S. Army for 10 years. I've done one deployment to Afghanistan in 2009-2010. Really happy to be here, guys. Hey. All right, and Cliff? I'm Cliff Moreland. I'm the office coordinator for the Multicultural Center and the LGBTQ Plus Center here at IUPUI. I'm also an IUPUI alumni and an Army veteran. I did five years in the Guard and Reserve, five years on active duty, disabled vet, no combat deployments, but I was deployed to Korea for three years on a one-year tour. Okay. So this episode is about uh, one of the universal experiences of anybody who serves in the, in the military, right? It's leaving it in some way. And while I understand that not everybody completely leaves it, uh, some go into the Guard, um, military police, things like that, there is a moment when you know that you're no longer going to be doing what you just had been doing for a certain number of months or years in the military. And we're interested in in hearing your stories about what that is like, that transition from service to whatever comes next. So Jennifer, could you tell us a little bit about that moment or that transition when you knew that whatever you were doing was coming to an end and you were going home and what that going home or coming, coming home was like? Yeah, sure. Um, So it was 2010, and we had just done 12 months in Afghanistan. And our missions required us to be what we called outside the box, outside the wire, Mm -hmm. a lot. We were in the box outside the wire a lot. What does that mean? It means that we were off of a military base and actually in the population. So where? Um, Well, I was in a a place called Gardez in the Paktia province. It's right there on the east side, uh, close to the Pakistan border. Okay. but we uh, normally would stay out in uh, country with our um, our Afghan police forces. Okay. Because I was a military police officer. Okay. So we were always doing uh, ops with them. We would stay with them for days or even weeks at a time. Outside of the base. Outside the base. Uh, occasionally they brought us some stuff to refit. But other than that, for the first probably couple months I was in country, yep. I was not on base. Mm, okay. Uh, except for one or two days every now and then. Yeah. Um, so you're always guarded. Yeah. You're always very, you have to be on top of everything because your life does depend on it. Yeah. And it's a high-stress environment. Now, coming home, um, I happened to get back 
in Indiana because I, when I came back, I went to Germany because that's where I was stationed at beforehand. Okay. Um, so coming back, I came back to Indiana uh, July 3rd. Uh-huh. So I got there right in time for 4th of July. Yeah. And let's just say it was not the best experience in the world. Okay. Um, because no matter how much I tried to turn it off, you just can't. When mm-hmm. you spend 12 months of it being programmed one particular way, like even the sound of a snapper, you know, that you throw on the ground, mm-hmm. I just like stop. Yeah. I froze. It's not like there was anything I could do because I didn't have anything on me. Yeah. When I came home, I purposely made sure I was not carrying a gun and I wasn't doing this and doing that because I wanted to try to acclimate myself back into society. How long were you in Germany before you flew back? Um, Well, I spent nine months in Germany before our deployment, and then I spent three months in Germany after our deployment. Okay. On a base in Germany. Yes, on a base in Germany. It was then, little, it was uh, it's called Bombholder, called the Rock. It's hell, okay. <laughs> it's uh it's something. Um but yeah, so And then you land in Indiana? And then I land in Indiana. Yes. What was it like walking through the airport? Who greeted you? Uh my fa- my family did actually. Um yeah. my girlfriend at the time, uh, and her son were yeah. there. My mom was there, my stepdad, my siblings, my dad. So Jennifer, I'm gonna ask you you know, I, I think many of us have this experience of walking out of like the little. Oh, no, it wasn't area. one of those things where I just drop all my bags and nope. run. No, I, I mean I was smiling and laughing, of course, because I was really happy to see them. Yeah, okay. It was more they were running. Okay. I didn't drop my bags because I was like, yeah. these are heavy. Yeah. <laughs> if I drop them, I'm not picking them back up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> did it? Did you feel like okay? So these are the people who I'm going to be spending a lot of time with for now on. And no, no. <laughs> no I, I just, cause I knew my time with them was limited Yeah, because okay. I was getting ready to go to another base. Okay. So, um, another base overseas or oh, no, no, no. I was actually getting, sh- uh, ship stateside. Now. Okay. I was going to Fort Riley, Kansas Okay. where I got to spend three years. So okay. it was always, I always would come home to my family, but it would always be for a weekend. Okay. Um, every few months okay. or, or, a week every yeah. year kind of thing. Yeah. So there was never a lot of time to go home. But yeah. like I said, when we came back from Afghanistan, uh, this time that I went home, yeah. uh, my parents actually saw what had happened to me in a sense. Yeah. Um, it was 4th of July. We were out camping because that was a family tradition at yeah. the time. Okay. All during the summer we'd camp. Yeah. That's kind of where we, where we were. Okay. There was a fireworks show um, at the campsite. I... Don't remember a whole lot about a part of it, but when I kind of came to, my parents were, my mom and my stepdad were both kind of on me, holding me, trying to give me some form of comfort because I was not there. Yeah. I was back in Afghanistan. Yeah. Like for some reason I was hearing gunfire and whatnot. So it was, it's, it's definitely a hard transition, which sadly enough, a lot of veterans of OIF and OEF go through is transitioning, trying to almost deprogram yourself. Sure. And you have to do it yourself. You you do. I mean, the VA, they have good stuff, and I'm thankful for the VA okay. because, you yeah. know, they – but not a lot of VAs are as decent as Routabush here in Indianapolis. Okay. I My best friend is out in California. Mm-hmm. She has to go to a, a, a counselor, a whatever – off of the VA. She had to get a referral, which took yeah, forever yeah. because she couldn't get in. Yeah, we've been hearing stories about that. Yeah, it yeah. takes months. Yeah. And even then, sometimes when it's finally their turn, they have to call and cancel. Yeah. 
So I guess I kind of lucked out on that one, but yeah, some not so lucky. I've got friends that have not been so not lucky. So lucky, yeah. And Cliff, I mean, yeah. do you have you have a story? Yeah, yeah, I'm going on and on here. Let's. No, no, that's okay. <laughs> so my coming home story is a little different. I had just reenlisted in the army in Korea for another three year tour. Mm. I planned on staying in and retiring, and then was going to the doctor because my knee was bothering me a lot after falling down a mountain. And after a year and a half of them misdiagnosing my knee as a runner syndrome, they finally took an x-ray and realized I'd broke my kneecap in six pieces. Oh, so they sent me to the hospital. They did surgery on it. The, one of the stitches on the kneecap got infected, so they literally had to rip my kneecap open oh. and let it heal from the inside out. So I had a scar about an inch and a half wide on my knee that had to heal up. Mm-hmm. So I was in a knee brace. This is, where were you? In South Korea. In South Korea, okay. So I was in a brace from my hip to my ankle with my leg unable to bend for six months while that was healing up. Okay. I had so much atrophy in my thigh, and my thigh was only 12 inches in diameter. So when they took the brace off my leg, they said, well, good news, bad news is, the good news is your, the scars finally healed up. There's no sign of any infection anymore. Mm. The bad news is you'll never walk again because your thigh muscle is completely dead. And I was like, no, that's not going to happen. I'm still in my 20s. I'm, I refuse to be in a wheelchair in my 20s. So I went through electric stimulation therapy training for, or yeah. treatment for three months. Yeah. Finally got a slight movement in my thigh muscle. Was able to start doing physical therapy again. Well, this, this is time, all in South Korea. All in South Korea. Wow. And On the base. On the base. All through the military. But they finally said, well, good news. You know, you are getting some movement back in your thigh. But you've been out of commission for so long now. We're sending you to Fort Sam Houston for a medical board to kick you out of the military for being unfit for military duty. So, so when you're, when you're leaving South Korea, you're flying to Texas. Yep. I flew straight from South Korea to Texas for to, this, for this hearing or whatever. Yeah. For this medical board. Ugh. I get there. They signed me to a me, uh, military board there yeah. and Brooke army medical center in uh, Fort Sam Houston, Texas. I get there and they're like, yep, here's the evaluation. We're kicking out of the military. We're going to rate you at 10% disabled, so you get no retirement, you get no disability benefits, you get nothing. You're on your own, see ya. And then they say, you have two options. You can either stay here till your contract expires, which is about three months. They said, or wow. we can PCS you to home or give you a permanent change of station to your home address. I was like, well, just send me back to my home address because I don't want to stay here for three months for nothing. So they sent me back to my home state. Well, there, I grew up in the, in the sticks in Arkansas. There's no airport anywhere nearby. It's a major yeah. airport. So I ended up flying into Missouri, and there was nobody at the airport to meet me. None of my family showed up. I ended up having to get a shuttle bus from the airport to my hometown. And even then, I got there, and there was nobody there. To and really this meet is me. all with your leg in, um, in some sort of huge brace. Yeah. Well, I had the brace off by then, but I still wasn't able to walk very well, so I was still limping pretty severely. Yeah. So, yeah, nobody was there to meet me. I just was on my own. So definitely you, welcome back. Was not there for me when I got out. Yeah, and you, and you got to your house. Is that where you stayed? I with finally your got to my, well, I got to my parents' house, yeah. my, my stepdad and my mom's yeah. house. And they finally was like, oh, hey, welcome home. It's like, that was thanks. It. You know, you're supposed to pick me up at the airport, but, you know. Yeah. And then I ended up moving out from there, and I moved to Indiana, but just because okay. the environment was not yeah, a not good great. environment for me to be in, right. especially right out of the military. So I moved up here to Indiana in 2003, about nine months after I got out of the Army. So I will say that the two of you have stories of coming home that may um, push against uh, what we assume, <laughs> you know, in the sort of popular culture version of coming home. It's not uh, instant jubilation. Things are not uh, as you would want them to be. And, and uh, but, but Cliff, so after that, you did re-enlist again? 
I tried. Okay. I actually tried to re-enlist numerous times, but due to my yeah. military board, they rated me as non-re-enlistable. So I couldn't go back in the military, even though they said I wasn't disabled yeah. enough to get a disability benefit or get medical retired. They said I was ineligible for re-enlistment due to my medical injuries. Yeah. So I, I filed my VA claim, and it took them about three years to send me my first review letter back, and they said, wow. no, all denied, no service-connected injuries of any kind. And I'm like, then why did you give me a medical discharge if I had no service-connected injuries? Yeah, It's the Army. Nothing makes sense. You should know <laughs> yeah. that. So it took me about five years of fighting the VA to get a 10% disability rating for my knee injury. Yeah. And I kept fighting them over the years. I went to service officer training through the American Legion to be yep. able to represent myself right. for my disability claims. And I'm currently listed at 90% disabled, but it, I didn't get 90% disabled until last year, which is almost 20 years after me getting out of the service. Yeah. Yeah, that's a long coming home. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to say that happens a lot with usually the people who are in the 90s or the 80s or whatnot, because uh, I'm commander for my local American Legion. Okay, so both of you serve yeah. as officers in, in your American Legion. Okay, yeah. very good. All right. Um, and there are some Vietnam vets, some 80s and 90s vets and yeah. whatnot that are still working with the VA to try to get. I've got a. I've got a guy in my unit. His name is, uh, I, w- I won't say names, actually. Yeah, sorry. yeah, yeah. Uh, I was about to. But, uh, he is in a wheelchair, mm-hmm. can't use his legs. He's a Vietnam vet, mm-hmm. very disabled. Yeah. And he did not, for the longest time, get 100% disability, yeah. Yeah. even though he can't do much of anything. Yeah. He can move his hand to steer him, you know, where mm-hmm. he needs to go or to hold something, you know, light, not anything too heavy. Yeah. So the VA can be very... Uh, <laughs> Stubborn. We'll go with stubborn. I like stubborn. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, how do you make sense of the stories that either you're part of or that you're party to when we sort of generalize about, you know, how grateful the nation is for any any service that people do? And yet you, you know, when people leave the service and that which is the moment where the nation's supposed to show its gratitude. It, it doesn't seem to happen. I mean, how do you how do you make sense of that? For me, a lot of it depends on the era you served in. Huh. Like Jennifer was saying, you know, our Vietnam vets and our Desert Storm vets, when we got out, we had to fight tooth and nail, and the majority of our veterans got their disability claim denied no matter what. Uh-huh. And we had to keep filing an appeal and keep fighting and fighting to get our benefits. But with a lot of the younger vets now, because I'm still helping veterans with their disability claims. Yeah. I got vets now that they're getting out and I'm helping them submit their claim and they're getting 70, 90, hundred percent on their first try without ever getting denied. Yeah. So I think a lot of it depends on the area you served in. Hmm. And then, you know, with the military mentality of suck it up and drive on, most of us never go to the That's hospital unless we absolutely have to. Yeah. So we sustain these injuries in the military, but then we never get them documented while we're in. Mm-hmm. So when we get out, we go to file a VA claim and say, look, you know, my knees are bad. My back's bad. Yep. I, you know, this, I broke my foot or whatever. And they're like, well, there's no record of it in your military record. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, there's not because I never went to the doctor because I didn't want to be made fun of and humiliated by put into a separate squad. Yeah, there was, uh, we called them sick call rangers, the ones who went to the uh, hmm. doctors a lot. That's um, a lot more politically correct than what we uh, yeah, I, I, had, I, can I had something different, but <laughs> okay. I went with our, I went with our PG uh, <laughs> right. listing there. But no, uh, yeah, it's a very big stigma if you go to the doctor, if you go to a therapist, like... It took a couple of years after I got back from Afghanistan before I started seeing a therapist on post. And it was because my friends forced me to yeah. because I had gotten like so angry yeah. 
yeah. and so much pent up everything yeah. that I was driving right away the people that loved yeah. me. Yeah. I was still in the army, mind you. I was still active duty in Kansas, all this stuff. Yeah. But outside of work, when I needed to be a civilian, yeah. I was not. I was still, I was drinking a lot to mm-hmm. try to keep the demons at bay, I guess the best way to put it. Because yeah. sadly enough, that's why a lot of vets coming home today have issues. Yeah. Is they can't quell their demons. Yeah. There's a lot, like, and even Vietnam vets will tell you, there's a lot that happens to you when you're there that sadly enough, you have a memory and it ain't going away. So but, historians of, of war and medicine and things like that, so we look back in records now, right? Every war has had the the, the interior wounds, yeah, right? And uh, and we didn't called a shell shock. Yeah, I think is what they yes. Ended up in World War right? World War One, they finally sort of sort of acknowledged that, right? Um, obviously, the Civil War it was all over the place, but it it wasn't really dealt with. And of course, every war has this. I mean, there were these stories of the Napoleonic Wars, you know. Mm-hmm. Soldiers um, abandoning posts, leaving. I mean, a, a lot of them just simply left, you know, the the forced march back towards France um, after the invasion of Russia. But mm-hmm. I, I think what I want to ask you is that legacy, that tradition, even though we know that every war has this, we still, as a society, as a government, as a service, haven't come to terms with what we know happens every time we put people in harm's way. So what gives? I mean, we, we have evidence every war harms people. They scar, they're scarred for life in ways, of course they wouldn't be necessarily if they had stayed stateside or been civilians. I think some of it is, you know, they just don't want to deal with it in a sense. Like, like you should know what you were getting yourself into in a sense. Like, It's not our fault yeah. you joined. It's a volunteer military. Right. You knew we it were in war. It is now, you right. Were, you knew we were in war, and you volunteered. Right, okay. The, Actually, but Vietnam's a little different, obviously. It was you know, World War II, and everything was a draft, yeah, so it's right. not like they had a choice. Right. And it varies between service. I've got a lot of my friends that were Marines, mm-hmm. and their mentality is, I'm like, dude, you're messed up. You need to go follow a VA claim. Mm-hmm. They're like, no, I knew what I was signing up for when mm-hmm. I signed up to be an infantryman. I knew I'd be going over there and killing people, and that I'd have to deal with the after effects later. Yeah. And they still refused to go follow a VA claim for their disability compensation because they said, in their mindset, that's what I signed up to do. Now I deal with it on my own. Yeah. yeah I mean, that's anybody, a lot of people in the military's critique of themselves. Yeah. I mean. So I'm interested yeah. in in the roles that you both play in American Legion? Well, I'm the commander of my local post. Yeah. Um, I started off as Sergeant of Arms about six years ago now. Okay. Six years ago. And uh, worked my way up. Uh, I have a great team of officers. Um, I've got, you know, all these people. And that was actually my support group when I got out. Okay. So that is something that that you do in the Legion. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. we always encourage everybody to come to our Legion meetings and stuff because uh, it's hard to get to the younger vets, Mm -hmm. the younger vets. When they think American Legion, they think a, a bar where guys are smoking and getting drunk and telling old stories about back in my day. Right. 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 There was a girl named Charlotte, a man named Charlie, you know, kind of stuff. So you have to, you have to show them and convince them that there are benefits mm-hmm. to being in the Legion. Is, is um, one of them 
helping them oh, come yeah. home in a certain exactly. sense. In yeah. a sense, yes, because a lot of veterans, I, I, I speak from my own experience and then as well as some of my friends and people I talk to, we don't talk to non-vets about what's going on. Like okay. my grandfather was a Korean War veteran. Mm-hmm. He was a Marine in Korea. And he did not talk to my family about yeah. his experiences, really. He would tell, like, PG stories, but he wouldn't really get into stories. Mm-hmm. But when I came back um, from my war, yeah, he opened up to me and told me all kinds of stories about when he was in Korea mm-hmm. and just his feelings and his fears, yeah. you know, because yeah. he knew that I would understand them because yeah. I went through the same thing. Mm. And that's what we do in the Legion. Yeah. We acknowledge that yeah. you just sometimes need somebody to talk to yeah. and we want to be those people kind yeah. of thing. Yeah. I mean, Cliff, similar. I mean, yeah, it sounds similar. like you're also helping them file ben- uh, 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 oh, yeah. disability benefits. Yeah, that's so good. Me, the two, man. I've been a, I've been a post commander. I've been Sergeant at Arms. I've yeah. been adjutant. I've been, the chaplain. I've held yeah. numerous positions mm. in the post level. I've also been a district level vice commander, membership chairman, and executive vice commander this year for the 11th district, which mm. is the entire Marion County. So I stay active in the Legion. But Absolutely. For us, we don't have a brick and mortar location for people to come to. Okay. So our right. focus is going out into the community and volunteering because a lot of our young men and women, they have that desire to serve. That's why they joined the military. Yeah. And a lot of them were got out on medical discharges, so they don't have that. Yeah purpose in their life. So we started volunteering in the community. We adopted a cemetery that was abandoned. Huh. And a lot of our men and women go out there and we clean the tombstones. We've helped reset tombstones. Yeah. We've, you know, taken down trees. We've brushed, you know, cleaned up brush and stuff around there. It gives them that sense of purpose and yeah. that sense of honor when they see this cemetery completely changed from being overgrown where you couldn't even see the tombstones to where now it's meticulously well-maintained every week. And then even like this weekend, this Saturday, we're installing a tombstone for a World War II veteran who yeah. passed away in the 70s who's never had a tombstone since he was laid to rest. Yeah. And we're installing it this, this weekend. And then a couple of months back, we installed a tombstone for a Civil War veteran whose hmm. tombstone was broken over the past 150 years. <laughs> right. And while we were installing that, we were able to find his wife and daughter's tombstones that were leaned up against the fence, and we were able to get those oh. reinstalled at their plots. So now the family's, you know, yeah, back very together. Good. Yeah. That's yeah. awesome. So that's a lot of what we focus on is community service. And yeah. then we volunteer a lot with different organizations on IPY campus, like the ROTC yeah. program right. and the IU Police Department with the Cadet of the Semester Award program. So that's our yeah, focus as a Legion Post here at IPY. Well, I want to say thank you to both of you for sharing your experiences. And this has been real interesting. Um, it's very different than the first two uh, that we had on. Um, and I think that uh, you've, you've given us sort of another channel to think about as we get into some of the, the later episodes in, in the series, uh, thinking about that, those institutions that are in between sort of civilian life and the military, like the American Legion, that have become really important that we don't always think about. Um, but thank you. Thank you. Thank All you. Right. It's great being here. Thanks for listening to Justice and War in American History. Please stay tuned for our next episode, which you can find on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Overcast, or through any of your favorite podcast providers. Please be sure to rate the podcast and to be in touch with us if you have any questions or feedback. You can find more information about this podcast and the broader Justice and War Project at justiceandwarseminar.org. If you are a veteran or concerned about a veteran who is experiencing a mental health crisis, there is 24-hour support through the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs. 
dial 988 and press 1, or text at 838-255. More information on support from the VA, visit mentalhealth.va.gov. And, as always, special thanks to the National Endowment for the Humanities for making this project possible. Thank you.